everyone. I'm Abby Feeder, Certified Life and Fertility Coach, and you're listening to The Fertility Chick. This show is all about the bumpy road to parenthood, which is almost never the same for everyone, and our guests' professional success along the way. Today's guest is Stephanie Carton. Stephanie is what I would call a master connector. Literally, anyone or anything you can think of where you're like, I wonder if this person knows this person. Stephanie is your way in. She's like a roadmap, and her favorite thing to do is connect people. Using her connection skills is actually what got her through her very challenging fertility journey and very challenging pregnancy and loss. And we're gonna talk about that loss today because in June, it's P-Prom Awareness Month and you're gonna learn all about what that is. Stephanie believes so strongly in the power of community that she's made her business around that. So I can't wait for you to hear Stephanie's story. Enjoy. We have so many things to talk about with you. And let's start with your fertility story, which might still even be going in some way. And we'll get into why and how. And then I just want to get more into like who you are as a businesswoman and then how those two people handle everything together. How does that sound? Yeah, no, that sounds great. Okay, good. So I have always known my entire life that I wanted to be a mom. And I think one of my, not I think, I know, one of my biggest fears in life was that I would have trouble getting pregnant. I had a lot of health issues my whole life. And I just was so scared that there would be problems when it was time to start trying to get pregnant. So at what point do you feel like you consciously thought to yourself, oh God, I hope I don't have a hard time becoming a mom? You know, it was probably around the time of my MS diagnosis because I didn't know a lot about MS when I was first diagnosed. I remember my first thought was, oh my gosh, is this going to affect anything with me actually getting pregnant? I did, you know, go on to learn through the neurologist that typically, you know, MS does not cause any any issues with getting pregnant. But I always just had my whole life all of these like strange health issues. And it was like kind of always in the back of my mind, like, would I have any issues at all? So right after my husband and I got married, I was like, okay, well, maybe I should do, we should do genetic testing just to see like if we'd like match for any issues just to know. So that was the first step that I took in our fertility journey right around the time we were going to start trying to get pregnant. Little did I know that was the tiniest little piece of everything. What I totally didn't know was all of the actual, like, that's what I was thinking, like genetic issues. I wasn't really thinking like, oh. Which by the way, like amazing you were even thinking that because who thinks about, I wish everybody got their genetic testing before they knew there there were issues, right? Because we all are just like, oh my God, I could have tested for this years ago and known going in and made a more empowered decision. Yes, absolutely. Yes, I had that foresight, I guess, to just do the the genetic testing. But what I didn't realize is obviously all of the things I learned by going through the whole process of fertility and fertility you know, you spend all of these years going to your gynecologist from the time you're a teenager and there were never any of these conversations about what you actually have to do to get pregnant, things you should test for ahead of time to know if your, you know, body is set up for anything. I literally knew nothing, nothing. Nor did I. No. And then that's, and I think of both of us as like pretty progressive, smart, educated women with like supportive families. So no 
no problem accessing good health care yeah. or support. And like, we still were totally blindsided. Yeah, I knew, I knew nothing. I nothing. thought, you know, you have sex and you can get pregnant. Get pregnant, yeah. Turns imagine, out. <laughs> imagine that. Not the case. <laughs> that would be crazy. So, oh my goodness. Uh, going back now. So we, I, we did the genetic testing and found out that, so my husband and I didn't match for any of the same issues, but we found out that I was a pre-mutation carrier of something called Fragile X. It could just be passed down from the mom. We didn't have to match for it. So at that time, I only had one other friend at the time who I knew who had gone through IVF and I messaged her or fertility issues. I messaged her. I'm like, oh, who's your doctor? And she's like, oh, this is my doctor. So I made an appointment to go see that doctor. And we see this doctor. And again, I had done no research on fertility specialists, nothing. I just took the word of one person and, sure. oh, it worked for her. That's who I went to. I didn't know to like research everything at that point. And he shared, you know, you can, you know, do some additional testing to see like how likely it would be to pass this down, which we then did. And then we got the results and it would be fairly unlikely that it would turn into a full mutation in the next generation. But he said, you know, you can also, to like guarantee it, you can do IVF now to do genetic testing and just be sure that everything is good if you want to guarantee and at that point, I was like, you know what? We're just going to try to get pregnant and see what happens. The risk seems so low. So now we spend a year. Also, just... by the way, I love that he was like, if you want a guarantee, as if any part of this process well... gives you a guarantee, right? But like in their head, they're like, sure, that would guarantee yeah. that one little piece of the piece, puzzle, puzzle is yes. in place. Yes. What okay. I still didn't know, even from that appointment, and I wish this doctor had been like said other tests we should have gone for to see. Like all I knew at that point was like, okay, we would just do IVF if we just want to be sure we don't pass down this like one genetic condition. Little did I know at that point, I wish this uh, fertility doctor had said, you might want to like go for some other like additional testing on your body, like nothing at that point. So we spent a year trying to just get pregnant the good old fashioned way with, uh, with no success. And then we go back to see this doctor a year later. And he, I remember he said something like, oh, I knew you'd be back or something like crazy along those lines. And that should have been a, a big red flag at that point. We did end up switching, switching doctors or other things that happened with that particular doctor. But why hadn't we <laughs> learned from an OB or anyone like other testing or things that we should have been doing to see if my body would be set up for success? So... Long story short, and, and oh, go ahead. at this point, you already no. knew about your MS diagnosis. Oh, yes, yes. So you weren't worried. You were told it was, should be fine. But there was no other bodily test, physical test, that anyone needed to do to see if that would become a complication later on. No, no. And there's still not. No doctor, like, even shared with me, like, oh, we should start, like, like looking at different testing for things or figuring things out. And... The only reason we ended up like figuring everything out was through all of my, essentially my social media research and my friend research to like see what was going on with other people and what they were sharing and me starting to Google things to try to figure out what, what could be going on. So with this first fertility doctor that we had gone to, he did an ultrasound and he's like, oh, I see something. It looks like it could be a polyp. I'm going to send you for an HSG test. So we go for that HSG test and they confirm there was they, what they thought was a polyp. He's like, okay, well, let's try an IUI this month to see if it works. So we do an IUI. Of course, it doesn't work. And then at that point, like I just had this like not great feeling with that 
with the doctor and the communication. I'm like, this is just not right. And everything I was reading and hearing from people, they're like, if you have polyps, like you probably shouldn't be doing treatment yet. Like you're, it's not, you're, oh, you're lining. Everything's not going to, your uterus is not going to be set up to hold a pregnancy. So I reached out to a, a few friends and started like really looking into other doctors and was referred to another fertility specialist in New York City. And we went to see him. And he's like, if you have even a polyp, the first thing we need to do is, you know, clear it out. Clear it out. Yeah. So that was the first step we did, I think it's a hysteroscopy. And when he went in to do the procedure, I remember I wake up from the procedure. He said, you know, you didn't have one polyp. Your entire uterine lining was covered in polyps. Oh my God. And at that point, I was like, I was so scared. I'm like, what does this mean? Like, do I have cancer? Like he was showing me the pictures of what looked like this horrible, horrible thing. And I was so nervous. And then he's like, look, it's all cleared out now. You know, we can start trying again. You like should be able to get pregnant. Like this was probably what it was. And that was part of it for sure. But as we, we went through each next step and we're uncovering different things as we went along, what I learned from everything, I just wish... I wish we had just done like all of the tests up front to like yeah. uncover everything. So you're not just like going down the line and one appointment after the other, like, oh, it could be this. It could be this. It could be this. So right. well, we, we always say like, we don't know what we don't know exactly. until we know, right? Exactly. Which is yeah. why I, I share all of this now yeah. because I, I think the biggest thing is just that learning as much as you can up front before you go down the road of hundreds of appointments and, and, and all of this tests. Yeah. Like the more you can <laughs> uncover upfront to set yourself up for success, the better. But again, I didn't know what I didn't know. Right. So we then got a call from our doctor a little over a week later and we found out because he did a biopsy when I went up the polyps and found out I had something called endometritis, which is an infection of the uterine lining. So he put me on antibiotics and said that should clear it up. And then we went back to start trying to do IUIs. So did a few more IUIs. They kept not working. And How I just, old were you at this point? Hmm, let's see. What year are we in now, Abby? I've lost track of time. Okay, what day is it? Okay, so I was... I will be 39 in July. So then it would have been five years ago. In July, okay, it'll so be years. Still, yeah. Yeah. So you're still like 33, 34, yes. under 35. Yes. Okay. So, oh my gosh, Abby, I haven't told the full story in a while. I'm trying to go, I'm trying to go back it. and remember all the... Uh, I love it. All of the, the different phases here. So... The IUIs didn't work. IUIs didn't work. Had right. this, I had this <laughs> feeling that I still had the endometritis. And I had said to my doctor, I'm like, do you think I could still have the endometritis? Like, no, no, no. Like you could do the antibiotics, it cleared it. But, you know, I had started sharing my fertility journey on social media and I was connecting with these other women who had endometritis. And I connected with this one woman and she's like, I have chronic endometritis as well. Haven't been able to clear it yet. So I said to my doctor, I'm like, we need to do a repeat biopsy to see if I still have it. And we found out that I did. So then I'm like, okay, we can't do anything until I clear this, yeah. this endometritis. At that point, it was around the same time we did decide to start doing the process of IVF. So he actually did the biopsy during my egg retrieval. Okay. And then I was like, we're not, <laughs> we're not doing it. Oh, wow. So you did stims and everything with endometritis. I did. Yes. And it didn't make it worse or anything. Didn't inflame you as far as you know. I don't You're here know. to tell about it. So, okay, I, great. I don't, I don't know. But <laughs> okay. what I did do was a lot of research and figuring out 
what could be the right protocol to clear chronic endometritis because the one antibiotic that I was initially given didn't do it. So after talking to other women who had gone through it, reading tons of journal articles, I then went to my doctor and said, this is the protocol that I want to be on. Let's test this. And then before we do a transfer, let's do a repeat biopsy to be sure that it's cleared. So I did three weeks of the protocol that I had researched and found that could work. And then I also asked for the Receptiva test as well. That was already around. Yes. So I think it was early days of Receptiva. Again, it was like from doing all of this research and learning from other women and trying to figure out like what could be going on. And then also, again, you know, from what I was reading and what I was hearing from other women that I was talking to because of my autoimmune with MS realized like, sure, MS might not cause like a problem with fertility, but just having an autoimmune issue in general, maybe there's other stuff immune related that could be going on with implantation. So started doing a lot of research on that and then found an amazing, you know, immune immune doctor who coordinated with my fertility doctor to put me on a protocol. So it was really like me uncovering and figuring out all of these pieces of what could be what could be going on and trying to bring all these doctors together to solve the puzzle. I love this because I always say it takes a village to make a baby, which mm-hmm. it does in our world for sure. And really it should in many worlds, even if it's easy for you, like we get the support once we're screwed, basically mm-hmm. not not ahead of time to bolster us and give us the best chance going forward. So I love just thinking about them working together on your case and like all of you guys sort of putting your thinking caps on and making this happen for you. And did you get good results from that first egg retrieval? I got very good results from the egg retrieval. I think I was potentially overstimulated. (laughs) Yeah, of course. Which is like first protocol, very normal. Yes. They're like, let's just see if the overstim works. Like you're going to do this once. We'll give you your bang for your buck and we'll try to get the most that we can. And then you're just like, "Mm, that doesn't work for everybody. But great for you, it worked. It, It worked. We got, you know, we ended up with, I should have double checked all the numbers because now after yeah. finally uh, being on the other side and having a little one and yeah. running businesses with sleep deprivation, I can't remember all the numbers anymore, but it was around yes. like 30, I think it was 30 or 31 eggs retrieved. And then I think we had around 23 fertilized. And then I think it was around 14 or so that came back healthy. Amazing. Okay. So we had here like like of, of everything that happened, I think that was probably the one good thing. Now yes. I had a, a lot of, I was in a lot of pain after that egg retrieval. And I think it took a few weeks for me to like really recover. I know some people are able to like the next day feel totally fine. I was yeah. not, but, but we made it through. And then do you want me to get into the... Yeah, let's get into... So did you just go right for transfer after that? Once so you were healthy? We were... So no, because we had done the egg retrieval, then we waited on the results to send, that we sent out for genetic testing. And then we are also waiting to get results back because I then was doing the antibiotics to try to clear the endometritis. Okay. But and at that I, point, you were like, we don't need to do another retrieval. Right. Once my body's back yes. to quote unquote normal, which I hate yeah. that word, but normal. Yes. Like we're going to transfer. Yes. Once the endometritis okay. was cleared. So now it was like making sure that we get on the an- antibiotic treatment And then with the doctor that was helping with all the autoimmune issues and the protocol, I was getting IVs of, was not IVIG, it was... Intralipids. Intralipids. There was big intralipids. Steroids. I was on steroids during... I'm trying to remember if it was before. If anyone is interested in in my whole protocol, I will pull it up and you can DM me and I'll (laughs) get you the... It sounds very similar to mine. 
which was like prednisone, Claritin, Pepsid. I was on all that, like a lot of that intralipids like leading up to it for a few months. But I think I I was on all of the stuff you just mentioned, like those few weeks leading up and during the first trimester of of pregnancy as well. So progesterone, obviously. Oh, yes. Yes, yes, yes. Okay. So talk to me about the transfer goes well. You did one transfer and got pregnant? We did one transfer and I had this feeling right away. I was like, I, this worked. I know that I'm pregnant and I have this feeling that the embryo split. Like I just had this intuition. And that's again, what I've learned from everything is like, you know, your body best and just go with what what you think. And you could share with people because I just knew I had this feeling. So four days after my transfer, I was always, as we were going through our whole journey, like with IUIs, I was always an early tester. Like I, I couldn't wait. Like I was never waiting for the blood test. Some people like wait. I'm like, I need to like... I was a waiter. I, was a waiter. I, I couldn't. I'm like, I literally yeah. testing multiple times today. Like, yeah. So I was like, the reason I, I don't... <laughs> and I, I talk about this a lot with my clients because I'm definitely team don't test unless you really need to or want to. But for me, there was so much heartbreak already. Yeah. I didn't want to have any accident. Like I wanted it to be a real answer and not yeah. a maybe the P was wrong or maybe... So I was like, I need to eliminate all questions and just go with what I know, you know, but I, I understand both sides of it. Oh yeah. No, I couldn't yeah. wait. Like I would yeah. literally every day and yeah. So it gets darker. Oh yeah. So I, I test and there was a line like right away. And I was like, oh my God. And it was early. It was four days after the transfer. I typically, I'm trying to remember now you go in for a beta seven or 10 days after. 10, it's about 10. 10. Yeah. Sometimes so four, nine, sometimes 11, but it's usually around 10. Yeah. So four days after there's a line and the next, uh-huh. the next day it was like dark, dark, dark. And I'm like the embryo split. Like I just know. <laughs> so now I'm like, Google. and then, so I went in early for my beta and the numbers were really high early and I just had this feeling. But yeah. even with a beta, like you're not going for an ultrasound right away. Anyways, right. the ultrasound I think wasn't for another Almost another two weeks, two weeks after yeah. that. At my first ultrasound, we only saw one, one sac. Okay. But at the second ultrasound, like a few days later, we saw both. And I, I just knew, like I just had this feeling. So yeah, the embryo split. Yes, <laughs> spoiler. <laughs> so we were initially pregnant with identical twin girls and we had a very rough first trimester, had a lot of bleeding, like gushing blood. So I like constantly thought, you know, the pregnancy was ending, that that we were yeah. miscarrying. But what I learned was in a lot of IVF pregnancies, I don't know if you've seen this with a lot of your clients, there's can just be a lot of bleeding because totally. of IVF pregnancies is, is what I learned. Yeah. Was it so, chorionic hematoma? Was it hematoma? Yeah, we had a hematoma. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So, so boring. So, so jarring yeah. after you've been through so much to see constant blood and then you're told it's okay mm-hmm. when it's a subchorionic hematoma, but it's like, it doesn't feel okay when you're looking down and seeing blood ever. Yeah. let alone day after day. So I know that can be really traumatic. It was horrible. And yeah. then we had about like one week during the pregnancy that like actually felt normal. I had stopped bleeding, things, things seemed okay. And then we went for our 16-week ultrasound and that's when we found out that we had something called twin-to-twin transfusion at that appointment. So... I was just in in complete shock, you know, at one of the early appointments, the doctor had shared, you know, all of the different risks associated with having an identical twin pregnancy. And I remember he was sharing all of those risks. And I was like, please, like, don't put them into the universe. Don't even talk about them in front of me. I don't want to know anything. Yeah. And I didn't, like, I didn't look anything yeah. up. I didn't want to know about anything. I just didn't want it, like, in my 
yeah. in my universe to put that out there. But unfortunately, identical twin pregnancies are commonly very, very complicated. It's different from a pregnancy where if, if we put in two embryos two, and we're pregnant right. with fraternal, fraternal twins, twins right. it's just a different type of pregnancy. Right. Because when they're sharing literally the placenta, so yeah. they're sharing survival skills, survival yes. tools, survival resources, it gets much more complicated. Yes. So... At that appointment, we learned we had pretty much a checkbox of every single horrible complication that you could have from a identical twin pregnancy, from the early signs of twin to twin transfusion, the blood supply of, or the cord insertion for one of the babies was not in the right spot. Like it was every horrible thing. And at that appointment was, I mean, just the most horrible day of our lives because we were then in a position where we had to make really quick decisions about something we knew very little about so fast. And it was even at that appointment, you can terminate one of the babies to try to save your other baby right now. We can do you know, emergency laser ablation surgery, but we like to try to wait like at least another week or two, the farther along you can get to do that. But if you wait to do that, you have a risk of losing the pregnancy before you do that. I mean, like every, ter- every, just a nightmare. The first thing I did was I went on Facebook and searched for a twin to twin transfusion Facebook group. And actually, I'll rewind for one moment. The weekend before that appointment, my, unfortunately, my grandmother had passed away that weekend, right before that appointment. I was home, just already distraught. And I see a commercial on TV for Columbia Presbyterian. And this woman on the commercial was talking about having twin-to-twin transfusion. Oh my God. And the doctor at Columbia who had saved her babies. And it was my doctor who I was going to at Columbia. So I remember, and my husband was at work at the time, like I took a video of the commercial and texted it to my husband. I said, God forbid we have any issues in this pregnancy. At least we're in the right place. We're in the right hands. Oh God. So then, so this woman who's on the commercial, then I go into this Facebook group and I meet another woman who had been through everything. And she like got on the phone with me like that night and talked me through everything. And she also went to that doctor. And then one of my business mentors, the woman who was on the commercial, that was her publisher. And she connected me with her. It was like the... Oh my God. Oh my but God. Everyone, everyone was willing to just get on the phone and yeah. talk to me and talk me through everything. And that is what helped me be able to make decisions and figure out what to do because you feel just paralyzed in those moments of here, all I ever wanted was to be a mom and to have this family and we'd finally gotten pregnant and now we have this blessing of being pregnant with twin girls and now, now you're having to make the worst decisions ever and trying to learn everything and figuring it out in this hyper like sensitive and stressful time it was just the awful. stakes are just like beyond high. And plus it's like you need to make the right decision for your life and your body, but you're also trying to salvage the pregnancy in some way, yes. shape, or form. Yes. Which again, spoiler alert, you did, but it was not easy. So tell us what happened. So we decide to move forward with doing the laser ablation surgery to do whatever we could do to try to save both of the girls. And my doctor had shared, I said, you know is there a chance? Is there even a chance that this could work and that we could save them? He said, there's a chance. And I said, that that's all I needed to hear. Like there was yeah. a chance. 
I don't think he thought there was a high probability that they could both survive after the surgery based on everything that was going on. But he said there was a chance. And totally, for me, like I, yeah. I had to try and I completely understand and respect anyone's decision in those moments because everyone is different. Everyone's body is different. Everyone's beliefs are different. But for me personally, I knew for myself that if I didn't at least try, like I just felt like I could never, like I would yeah. never You'd be always okay ever again. Yeah. yeah. And of course. I agree completely. We do this surgery and at the end of this, and I had... I knew this is only a 30-minute podcast, so we can yeah, we'll get if this. We'll pull over, okay, too. But we have a... The surgery itself was extremely traumatic. I yeah. had a, like a reaction to one of the medications like on the table. Like, it was it was all awful. And you're awake during the surgery. It was just really... It was horrible. But after the surgery, we, there were still two heartbeats. So both of the babies were alive after the surgery. Mm-hmm. Then the next morning, because you stay overnight in the hospital, we went up for the ultrasound and unfortunately had lost one of our babies. Mm. She did not have a heartbeat the next morning. And I just remember in that moment, like I cried, but I just had peace knowing like at least we tried. Yeah. And we did everything we could do to try. And we were so upset, but Molly still had a heartbeat. She was still there. I was going to do whatever we needed to do to fight for Molly. So we go home that day. And then the next day I'm at home and I just start leaking fluid. (sighs) And I, it had been in the back of mind. I remember that the doctor had mentioned, I think he had mentioned like you could potentially, you know, rupture from the surgery, but I never really (sighs) like, I never thought about it. But in that moment, when I started leaking fluid, I'm like, oh my God, like, did I did I rupture? So I text the doctor and he says, come into the hospital. And at that point now I'm like leaking a lot of fluid and bleeding. And now I'm in the, you know, emergency room at the hospital. And they're like, your pregnancy is probably over. You're probably going to go into labor. And when they do the laser ablation surgery, they're going in with like a sterile instrument through your placenta, through your sac, Mm -hmm. like, and that can happen. And so the first thing I did, so I'm laying there in the ER and I post in the twin to twin transfusion Facebook group what had happened. And members in the group said, you know, go join the PPROM group. And PPROM stands for premature rupture of your membranes. Mm -hmm. And so I posted in that group what was going on. And these women in the group were posting, you know, if your baby has a heartbeat, there is still hope. Like your babies can actually survive without amniotic fluid. And I was started reading all these stories of hope and I'm in the hospital and these doctors are saying like, you're going to go into labor. And now I'm like, I have no idea what is happening right now, but I was just trying to like, hold on to the belief, like, okay, maybe, maybe this pregnancy can keep going. But at that point I started learning everything about this through this Facebook group and by connecting with these other women through the group. So Long story short, we stayed pregnant. I spent 17 weeks on bed rest, six at home. hospital, right? Six six at at home. home. And then once we made it to 23 weeks, um, went inpatient into the hospital. And and I spent 11 weeks inpatient at Columbia Presbyterian. And Molly was born perfect and healthy and breathing. She only spent two weeks in the NICU. And she is a little miracle. And these these doctors were crying. They could not believe it. Yeah. And so, you are very 
generous in spirit and loving in spirit because you honor your other twin, Emmy. Yes. And I think you talk about her so beautifully. And I think we talk, we're going to talk a lot about grief on this podcast. And one thing about grief, when you have a name of the the child, the Mm -hmm. baby, I think it's so important to say it. So I know that when you post about that, just posting her name and you've posted a beautiful photo of Molly before with like an empty cuddle bug, like a, a spot for another cuddle bug that's empty next to her and you put Emmy's name. And I just think that makes other people feel so seen. And mm. I love that you do it that way. I think it's really special. Yeah. Well, she's part of our family and will always be. And we, you know, I talked to Molly about her and Molly's almost four. And I think she understands what she understands, but we always say goodnight to Emmy who lives in our heart every single night when we go to bed. And yeah. she's part of our, our family. Yeah which I love. Yeah. I don't want to like up too abruptly switch gears here, but like while you're managing all of this insanity <laughs> and living in the hospital, like you're also an entrepreneur. So tell me a little bit about at that time, what your entrepreneurial life was, and then we'll bring it up to current. Sure. So at that time, we were, Courtney and I were focused, if you can believe it, on only one business at that time. So we were <laughs> focused on our agency business, Social Fly, which is a social media marketing and influencer and agency. Courtney, just to be clear, Courtney is her work wife. Yeah, Courtney's my work wife, my business partner. Business partners, yes. Okay. <laughs> and Greg is my husband. Yes. Um, so I I was running, you know, our new business and and marketing for Social Fly. And here now, now I'm spending 17 weeks on bed rest and not in my office and Courtney having to like manage manage everything in the business. And I was, you know, doing as much as I could do from the hospital and and working remotely at that time. It was an early taste working remotely <laughs> before, yes. before 2020. Yes. And we had our podcast at that point. And back then, actually, we used to record everything in person in New York City. So Courtney would record the podcast and I wasn't even able to record that wow. when I was wow. in the hospital. But I did, you know... Working from the hospital and, you know, keeping as busy as I could was very helpful for me. And I was just so focused on just like trying to keep things as normal as possible. And it did really help. I was basically working all day in the hospital aside from like going up to my ultrasounds and doing other things there. And it it did help for sure. But it was hard and it was so hard on Courtney. And it went after I had Molly, obviously took some time when after she was first born. But I felt like I had to get back to my office as soon as possible because I had been out for so long and Courtney needed to take some time. We were managing a lot in, in yeah. the business and it was not easy to go back now. No. Yeah, now would be like, no big deal. Go I know. back to what? Go back to where? <laughs> I know. So, yeah. Um, but are- I will say like, I admire your business relationship with Courtney because you guys did a lot of smart things from the get-go in terms of laying out priorities and plans. So can you just talk a little bit about like very briefly, but just like the things that you think make a great business partnership that you put in place? Yes, absolutely. Well, the first thing, Courtney and I have been business partners for 11 plus years now. And look, Courtney and I were very young when we started our business together in our early 20s. And life circumstances and things change as you grow in life and in your business. But something that Courtney and I had very early on was very clear direction of the business and the business we wanted to build and our values, our life values and our business values were always fully aligned and we're able to have conversations with each other about things without things feeling like, you know, uncomfortable or awkward. We had an operating agreement in place, you know, something I always recommend if you have a business partner 
start out with an operating agreement. So if things do happen in the business and things change, like people's lives change, you have everything in writing of like what happens with the business if something does change for someone. So we always had an operating agreement and we always had this very clear direction of what we wanted for with the business. And we also had trust. Like I trust Courtney with my life with everything. And I know like she feels the same about me. And that is so important in a business partnership. Yeah. I love it. Okay. So you have Molly. Then tell me when Entreprenistas was born. Yeah. So during the pandemic, so mid 2020, we started receiving so many messages from our followers on Instagram, our listeners of the podcast. We were hearing things like, I lost my job during the pandemic. I want to start a business. Can you help us? Or I need to pivot my business. Can you help us? And Courtney and I, we want to help everyone. But we realized I'm like, we can't go out to coffee with everyone. We can't help everyone. And everyone needs this connection and community and support. And we always knew from starting the podcast at the end of 2018, we always knew there was... We wanted to have so much more with Entreprenista because we wanted to provide as much as we could. But our main focus was our agency business. But in 2020, we saw in that moment, like there was such a need and we needed to help everyone at that time. You know, we couldn't leave people hanging. So we decided in 2020 that Courtney would focus on continuing to grow and scale our agency business. And I would work on building everything out with Entreprenista to build what it is now today, a full membership community and media company for women founders and leaders. So we launched our Entreprenista League, our membership community, which you're part of, uh, Mm -hmm. for women founders and leaders, where we give our community and members access to all of the different resources, business tools, and solutions, everything we've used to grow our business over the years. And I've provided this community and platform for everyone to be able to network and connect and do business together. And it's just been amazing. It's amazing. It's like learning, networking, empowerment. It's like you name it. It's in there. It's all, Um, all all under one roof. It's everything we wished we had when we started our first business. I'm going to turn the tables on you because I have something that you ask all of your guests on the Entrepreneurista League podcast, which is what does being an Entrepreneurista mean to you? Oh my gosh. No one ever asked me. Thank you, Abby. Yeah. Being an Entrepreneurista to me means you are willing to help others. You want to support other founders and really want to empower others and have the life and business that you so deserve. I love it. We talked briefly, we sort of skimmed over your MS diagnosis, but it's a big deal. I remember when you first mentioned it in, I think we were actually on a clubhouse. It was like Mm -hmm. when clubhouse was maybe going to be a thing. We were like doing fertility clubhouses together. You like, that's how we we met through that actually. And then you casually mentioned one day an MS diagnosis and I was like, "Whoa, whoa, 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 what, what? And I can't imagine, how old were you when you got diagnosed? 27. 27. Yeah. And were you, you weren't married yet? Was not married. Greg okay. and I were dating. Like, in terms of your everyday life, how does this diagnosis affect you? Obviously, you were able to procreate a beautiful girl, but how does it affect you on a daily basis? You know, it really depends on the day. And that's the really challenging part about MS is you can literally be fine one day and the next day wake up and not be able to see properly. And I've had that happen or have issues walking and have, you know, fatigue and memory loss. Like I've had pretty much every single like symptom and issue with MS, but luckily I've done steroid treatments and now I do IVIG and 
things seem to be, I like to knock on wood, like it's really hard because I can be fine one day. And then when I've had op- challenges with optic neuritis, where I've had issues with my vision, can literally just happen one day. And then I can't see out of my eye or everything gets blurry. You've, I've, you, that's happened when we've been chatting and you're like, I'm so sorry. I need to move to voice text because I cannot see anything, you know, it was, like it out was, of nowhere. It was awful. It was March of last year. Yeah. And it was so interesting. Like I did when it first happened, I've had optic neuritis issues happen before, but when it happened, I was like working so much and I was like, oh, maybe I'm just having issues with like the blue light on my screen. Maybe I need blue light glasses. And then finally, cause it was like really blurry vision, like really blurry but it was like different from other times that it happened. And then finally, after like a week, I'm like, maybe it is my MS. And then I got a steroid treatment and then it got better within a few days. Mm. So you're like, that is part of it. Yeah. Yeah. So Okay. You're managing a lot. And I know you thrive that way, which I think is great. Is there any, I guess, two things I want to just finish up on, which is I feel guilty sometimes when I talk about my twins with you. And I've, te- I've said this to you before because it's like a constant reminder that you don't have twins. But much like we talked about earlier, saying the name of Emmy, mm-hmm. it actually helps you. So I just think about, I know that Molly has some friends that are twins and I wonder mm-hmm. what is it like for you in your heart, do you immediately have a reaction, like a visceral reaction when you see twins or hear about twins? Not always. I've made peace with everything. And while there are days and a really crazy story, actually, that Molly's best friends in the neighborhood are twins. Yeah. And those twins, I shared this on Instagram like two years ago, when I was searching for people with twin to twin transfusion during the, the whole process and searching hashtags on Instagram, I connected with this guy on Instagram and his wife was like a week ahead going through the surgery. Long story short, we both ended up living in this neighborhood. They were living in Houston at the time. So crazy. And so th- those are Molly's, those are Molly's like best, best friends, friends in our neighborhood. It's yeah. just the world is so, so I love small. That. Yeah. So are there times like, I'm like, I, I wish Molly had her sister and I, I wish, you know, we had that. I do, of course. But I try to just focus on being grateful and thankful that we have Molly and that she's healthy and that she's happy. And life is really hard and really challenging. And we have her. And look, it's not easy, but I just try to reframe things. And I... I'm genuinely happy for other people. Like I'm not the type of person. And and I went through this during the whole process of trying to get pregnant. Of course, when you see other people that are getting pregnant and you walk around and you see people's bumps, you know, you could just start crying. Like why them and not me? But I always remember everyone has their journey. Everyone has their story. Everyone is going through something. Just because you see someone pregnant, you don't know what they've gone through to get pregnant. Like I'm genuinely happy for everyone to have their family and have the family that they want. Because as you know, like everything has to go like perfect to like get a child here. Yeah. Yeah. So it's not easy, but I've definitely made peace. Okay. Last question. Is there any like mantra, motto, cliche that you live by or think about every day? Yes, I have a couple. So okay, I can great. share I can share the one that got me through my pregnancy while I was in the hospital. And that was every day pregnant is a good day. 
So like every day that I was able to stay pregnant, I would just say that over and over again to like get through each day. Something that I just say all the time in in general with with life and like working and trying to manage health and family and everything is life can be really hard and there can be really bad days. But I would, I always say like tomorrow is a new day. So like even if today I feel like crap and just didn't have the best day and things were challenging in business or something happens at home, we get to start over tomorrow and tomorrow is a blessing. So start the day over the next day. And I just try to find the good in, in absolutely everything. I love it. And you do. And you you have such a bright, shiny personality. And it's, it's, it's appreciated by a lot of people, including me. So we're very grateful that you are here, Steph. Thank you so much. We will link out to where everybody can find you. But if you ever have an entrepreneurista question, which by the way, entrepreneurista is like one of my favorite words ever, check out Entrepreneurista League. You can ask me questions about it. You can ask Steph questions about it. I highly recommend it if you're in any form of business. And thank you for sharing your heart and your story with us. Thank you. And for anyone who wants to connect, you can always reach out to me or send me a DM on Instagram or a message. I'm always happy to connect and be a resource. She really does. She responds to basically everything, usually at 10 o'clock at night when she's supposed to be in bed. I know. Past my Instagram bedtime. (laughs) Yes. Thanks, Steph. Thanks, Abby. Mm, Thank you, Stephanie, for sharing your story. Really... Molly is such a miracle. And I believe it was Molly's fourth birthday recently. So listen, if you're anyone that identifies as a female and identifies as an entrepreneur and you're interested in the Entreprenista League, which is Stephanie's business, check out the show notes. We have a link to join. It's really an incredible place to champion and cheer for other women doing the hard work of building businesses. Listen, today I wanted to talk about compassionate transfers. Honestly, I had never heard about this until quite recently, but one of the challenges once you are through your IVF journey, if that's the way you've gone, is what to do with the embryos that you have remaining. And you sign a lot of paperwork ahead of time that makes you commit to maybe giving them to science or if God forbid something happens to you, would you want them discarded or donated? And it's a very heavy and... (laughs) scary topic to talk about when you're facing IVF because usually you have to fill that paperwork out before you've even had any results. So one thing that I recently learned that you can do, which I was not familiar with on my own journey, is something called compassionate transfers. And a compassionate transfer is when, let's say your family building is complete, but you do have embryos left and you don't feel comfortable donating them and you don't feel comfortable donating them to science you can do a transfer into the vagina instead of to the uterus to ensure that they don't implant and they sort of discard into your body's makeup and become a part of your body. I just wanted to share this as an option because it's something I never knew about. And if this is something you'd like to hear more about, please DM me and let me know. We have experts we could bring in about what your options are with embryos after. And I know For anyone that might be considering IVF, but has religious implications or challenges in terms of thinking what to do long-term with embryos, can be a really interesting topic to discuss. So I'm happy to bring it in if it's something you're interested in. In the meantime, thank you so much for listening to The Fertility Check. Please give us a share, give us a follow, give us a rating of five stars at The Fertility Check on Instagram, or you can find me at Abby Feeder or at Encircle Fertility. Remember, you don't have to go through this alone. Have a great week.